Hello everyone, my name is Anas Al-Savag and this is Something About Everything. With me here today is Mr. Ehab Lutayef, a prominent Egyptian-Canadian political activist, political commentator, writer, and the former chairperson of the Egyptian-Canadian Coalition for Democracy. And today, we are going to talk about whether democracy can work in the Middle East. In our conversation, we will be focusing our analysis on Egypt, because Egypt has the biggest population in the Middle East, and its state is usually reflective of what's going on in the region. Thank you for being here, Mr. Ahab. Thank you for having me. I want to first start and tell you why I wanted to discuss this topic. I was doing some research about politics in the Middle East, and I came across this article by Charles Esawi. He was a leading economic historian of the Middle East. And the article is about the foundations of democracy and their absence in the Middle East. And he said things like, the economic and social soil is still not deep enough to enable political democracy to strike root and flourish. And he also said, what is required is a great economic and social transformation, which will strengthen society and make it capable of bearing weight of the modern state. Now, what I found to be really scary about this article is that it was published in 1956, and people still say the same thing in 2019 which made me think the Middle East, is it actually ready for democracy? To start off, I want to ask you, do you think the average day Middle Eastern understands democracy? The topic is extremely interesting and extremely important. Um, If you would permit me, I will start by commenting on what you started with before, before we, we tackle the question. The problem, I think, is that democracy anywhere in the world is not a step function. It's not that today there is no democracy and nobody's practicing democracy. And tomorrow, everybody can understand, comprehend, and deal with democracy and the challenges that are included in it. I think why the situation now is as it was in 50s, 1956, is because the process did not start. And the process itself is a learning curve. And as long as we don't start, we will never get better. And really, this is, I mean, this might summarize a lot of what we're going to talk about in the coming minutes uh, about the whole question itself. Now, I I mean, after this, I feel more ready to answer your question. So I'll ask you to repeat it again. (laughs) Okay. Uh, My question is, do you think the average day Middle Eastern understands democracy? First, the average day Middle Eastern is a very difficult entity to evaluate because, uh, of course, different countries in the Middle East have very different social, economic, and tribal or non-tribal structures that affect this question. And even in one country, I think education level, exposure to world politics in general, for example, and exposure to the local politics being uh, included or interest in local politics. All these things affect how any one person would be ready or not ready or understands or not understands democracy. But also, I would say that nobody understands democracy before they are really put in a place where they can practice democracy. Then you start to understand it and then you start to get ready for it. I don't want to jump to future questions you might have, but the the mere fact how the 
Arab Spring collapsed in Egypt, for example, is a proof to me that the Egyptian, at least the Egyptian middle and upper class, or upper middle class and upper class, were not ready for democracy because they saw that democracy would take away certain things of their luxury way of life. That does not apply to the other uh, 80 or 90 percent of the population. But it doesn't matter because the other 80 or 90 percent of the population have a much lower voice than those who can affect the political and social scene. Uh, I don't know if I helped answer your question or complicated the issue more, but um, I'll throw it back to you when we move on. (laughs) I'm going to focus our numbers here on Egypt, for example, because you started with the Egypt as the main country to analyze in the Middle East. I'll tell you some results from, uh, uh, from surveys done by the World Values Survey. And uh, the first survey was a question asking the Egyptian people if having a democratic political system is a good thing. And the result was that 98.7 said it's between fairly good and very good which is an excellent result. We move on to the second question they asked is, if people choose their leader in free elections is a characteristic of democracy, and they were asked to give it a grade from 1 to 10, 1 being not essential for democracy and 10 being essential to democracy. And the Egyptians scored about 8.79, I would say. So that is good, again. But then here comes the confusing part, which makes me insist on the question, of whether people really understand what democracy is. Because in that very same survey, they asked if having a strong leader who does not have to bother with parliament and elections is a good thing. 94% of Egyptians said it was either a fairly good to a very good thing. So does that make you concerned about whether we actually understand democracy before going into the processes of democratizing the country? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is a very uh, worrisome survey. And again, I think it does very much reflect somehow what I just spoke about earlier, which is that the people were encouraged about the hypothetical uh, democracy thing that they keep hearing about. But when they realized that it will cause some sort of instability and the transition of power might bring them a leader that they are less comfortable with than the dictator, for example, they right away said, we love democracy, but um, let's focus on what we really need. And I think this survey that you mentioned goes totally in line with that, is that when we went into the nitty gritty of a strong leader who can maybe, let's call it, can achieve something or can, can take the country in one direction, of course, among those many who said at the beginning that they, they, they want democracy and they want the election, they favor to have that strong leader regardless now of, of elections or otherwise. So I think the understanding here of that democracy is a process and democracy has pains like the pains of, of, of childbirth uh, is, is not understood to the people of Egypt. And thus, uh, you are totally uh, justified to insist on the question. Because within this context, and now it's more scientific, they are not, they do not understand what, what democracy is in all of its aspects. They might understand some parts, but obviously they don't have an understanding of the full package. You're exactly right in saying that democracy is a perplexing and confusing system. 
it's not as simple as you have a democratically elected president or parliament and everything will work out perfectly in the country. There is more to it. There is more of a social and economic reform that goes with it. Uh, this brings me to my next question. So we have often heard this phrase that Islam is not compatible with democracy. Islam being the religion of the majority in the Middle East or in specific Egypt, do you think religion plays a role in making the Middle East, or again, Egypt, resistant to democracy? This is a very touchy question. And of course, I'm going to answer from my understanding of Islam and my understanding of the role that religion should play in the lives of those who believe in the, the, the said religion and it's Islam in that case. But also there is a, an extremely important aspect here. Uh, because when we speak about Islam, we don't speak only about a set of principles, but we also say, speak of an organization being here, not, not as one organization, but those who speak or preach or guide the people in religion, whether I'm not talking about a certain institution like Al-Azhar, for example, but I'm talking about all those who have people's ears about religion. And I think that structure, that organization, which is again not really a literal organization, has a lot of influence about people as Muslims in this case, not being confident in democracy, because using Islam using what in my mind is a, an interpretation or a vision of religion that is full of misinterpretations and shortcomings, using that vision, you can really make people very weary about democracy. Meaning that a simple example is if you tell people who are generally uh, believers in, in a religion, again, I'm going to take it further than Islam, uh, that the majority can vote in something that is against what you believe is a core of religion, you right away will tell them, okay, then we accept democracy, but with limitations. And as soon as you enter into that, then you are not really accepting democracy. So it is dangerous to say that Islam is not compatible with democracy because Islam it's only as good as those who interpret it to the, to the masses. Uh, but I would say that the understanding of the masses of Islam and the way those who are speaking in the name of Islam, who guide people in Islam, the way they deal with democracy, those people makes Islam a hindrance for the application of democracy in the Middle East, in Egypt, etc. Okay, I want to give you another perspective regarding the same question. Islam is as compatible with democracy as Catholicism is. Both institutions have had this resistance to the idea of having another institution, as in the government, being the moral judge and the manager of people's daily affairs. The only difference is the church was able to change that for two main reasons. One being that they saw in democracy a protector from totalitarian regimes because religious institutions in Europe were persecuted by the Nazis and the fascist regimes. Uh, the second reason is that the group of progressive thinkers emerged from the mainstream Catholic institution to develop this ideology that bridged between the church and liberal democracy. 
Now, if we take these two very same factors and analyze them in the Middle East, for number one, you will find that religious groups did not learn from their experience with totalitarian regimes. A great example is the Salafi movement in Egypt and its experiences under Abdel Nasser and Sadat. And then to this day, uh, the same Salafi institution is trying or attempting to ally itself with the Egyptian military. And for the second point, you will find that we actually have those thinkers and we have those uh, progressive ideologies and modern interpretations of Islam that align with democracy, but they have been violently repressed by regimes, be it in Saudi Arabia or Egypt or the UAE. What do you think of this perspective? Um, I wouldn't oppose your perspective. I will, again, split it into two parts. The part of the internal reform of the religious uh, institutions themselves. And the, the second part about the thinkers, the free thinkers that, that create a new vision of things. So taking the first one, I want to, I mean, you mentioned the Catholic Church in the mid 1900s. Uh, I want to take us about the Catholic Church. I want to take us back two, three hundred years more, actually. And it is at a point where the time of the, of the French Revolution, basically, when the church realized that the masses themselves are starting to have aspirations to rule themselves by themselves. And I'm just mentioning the French Revolution takes us to, to, to something else related to the first question you asked about the readiness for democracy and the understanding of democracy. Let us realize that the French Revolution that happened in 1789, uh, France after that, it took it a hundred years between returning to monarchies and emperors and whatever, till democracy was finally fully and stably established about a hundred years after that. But let's go back to the church. The Catholic Church had started to realize that people can go without it into reforming society. And out of need, I think the reform in the church and the acceptance more of what the people want, be it democracy or otherwise, started to open up. Of course, this again, like we were speaking about democracy, this is not a step function. Things happen slowly, but take hold after a long period of time when other factors come into play. I don't know if I totally agree with you that the, the church realized that it is safer under democracy compared to under totalitarian rulers because I also have a huge concern about the leaders of the religious institutions managing to coexist, totalitarian users in many cases, and they decide on some sort of power-sharing agreement or an agreement where the religious institution is under the, the, the real control, but the protection as well of the totalitarian regime. And the example, of course, of the first, which is the alliance that happened between uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab in, in Saudi Arabia with Muhammad ibn Saud in the early uh, 18, uh, late 1700s, actually. And uh, so that's one example. The other example is uh, what we have seen in, in Europe for hundreds of years, where the church would play this push and pull 
game with the monarchies of, uh, of, of Europe. But at that time, the papacy had also territories and armies. So it was a slightly or maybe uh, really different dynamic there. Uh, and then you can see also in the coup in Egypt, uh, how the uh, democratic government was toppled in 2013. You realize that religious institutions signed on the dotted line uh, and supported the, and, and here religious institutions crossing one religious line. So we're talking about both the, the Muslim and the Christian religious leadership in Egypt uh, that allied themselves to protect themselves by going hand in hand with the dictator or the totalitarian uh, ruler. So the scope of this interaction can use more expansion in the vision. I think there are many, many truths about that. But what I think what we agree upon is that there will uh, not be an easy path to, or not an easy, a, a feasible path towards democracy without or before managing to stand up to these uh, religious institutions in the favor of, of democracy. I will move to the second point, which is also extremely important, which is the free thinkers that want to drive society towards what we can call real democracy or sincere democracy. And uh, they face not only the wrath of the government governing totalitarian regimes, but they also uh, face the, the wrath and even, even a stronger wrath by the religious institutions. And it is difficult to know, uh, although I have my theory, but it's difficult to know which one of those wraths is the one that really brings them down more. One might think that it is the violence and the jailing and the detentions and the the, the, the attack on their, on their basic livelihood that stops them. I tend to believe that uh, using religion to turn the masses away from them is a far more effective and it is the one that really tips the balance in their ideas not getting to the people. Mm. I think it's more of a third option, not the government. Well, it's a combination of both of those, but with another factor, which is the media. I think we, we are in agreement, at least, that physical harm, bodily harm, execution, incarceration have an effect. But the real effect that prevents the people from considering those reform ideas in an open mind is the tabooing of those ideas and the religious institutions with their probably cronies in many places, in many locations, are, are very masterful in that. Yeah, that's actually a much more eloquent way of putting my point. Thank you. <laughs> okay, moving on to my next point. In his article, Charles Esawi was talking about a necessary social change before democracy can arise. Is the social structure of, let's say, Egypt preventing democracy from being successful? Yes, and I'm going to make it very simple. I mean, I'm going to give a, a stronger example, and this would take me out of Egypt, but the dynamics of what happened in Tunisia and in Egypt was very similar. But if we look at the social structure of Tunisia with the little I know about it, is that it has a much wider, bigger middle class. It has a much larger educated class that is, again, in percentage, of course, uh, that is that is in 
communication in awareness with uh, the international culture and thoughts. Uh, and number three, extremely important, it doesn't have a very dominating army or military military apparatus. I think that it is true that in Egypt, the shrinking middle class, the alliance of the upper middle class and upper class with their checkbooks and their benefits, with whoever can rid them from any worry they would have about losing those privileges, and the fact that they are very a very small faction in society and the rest of society nearly has no voice. And really, I, I have used this expression before. When I look at a country like Egypt, I think it might not be the only country in the world, but it's surely an example where there are many people, the vast majority of the population are voiceless. And this is the, 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 the catchphrase here. They have no way to get their voice heard outside their immediate relations. Whereas the only people in Egypt who have a voice are a very, very small percentage of, of society, and they usually have financial and economic and lifestyle interests that they are usually willing to go to great lengths to protect. Yeah, exactly. I really agree with what you said, because Egypt has a significantly large illiterate segment that can be easily manipulated into hindering the democratic process. But it also has an upper class of business, religious, academic, government and military elites who have chosen to ally with the repressive regimes in exchange for incentives, benefits and protection. We are yet to see an upper class in Egypt or the Middle East in general that is actually dedicated to changing the economic and social structures in the countries. And they won't. And they won't because their human interest or their interest as selfish humans, as we all are, does not necessarily fall with the risks of a change, of a drastic change of of, of the way the countries govern. If we want to wait for them to do it, we'll wait for a long time. Yep, so we shouldn't hold our breath. Not that the change will come from there, no. So my next question is about another common phrase that we hear is that we are the way we are because of the past, because of our colonial past. Do you think colonialism and its effects led to the current tyrannical and failed regimes in the Middle East? I think every nation, every people are a result of the experiences that they have gone through. We have spoken about the, the French Revolution. The French people were not uh, under any, any occupation in the, in the 1700s when the revolution started, when the ideas and thoughts of, of many thinkers started to affect the people. Uh, but uh, they were not under occupation, but they were under a lot of social injustice that was very heavy, and they had no voice as well. And they were considering that their kings are the the, the sun, you know, and and uh, giving them total control. The king and the aristocracy had total control over over the country. Uh, yet at a certain breaking point, things changed and they took the risks. Now I think that when we talk about the colonial past, the colonial past is very different and affected the peoples of the Middle East, for example, in very different ways. 
Yet here is the sad part as an Egyptian myself that I reach and have to express because that's my honest thought, but with sadness, is that the Egyptian typical persona and the Egyptian typical persona is not me who grew up in, in Cairo within a, an educated class uh, well off to a certain extent. That's not the Egyptian persona I'm talking about. I'm talking again about the Egyptian persona that accepted that it's it's not its issue who rules in Cairo, whether it's the British or whether it's Napoleon or whether it's the Mamluks or whether it's Nasser, uh, as, as long as they can plow their fields, as long as they can have their crops grow, those people have accepted this not only because of colonialism, but because of, of many factors, some of it self-inflicted. But there are few, very few peoples in the world that were oppressed by foreigners for so long uh, as were the Egyptian people. And that is why we see, to a certain extent, more pride in other nations that were also oppressed compared to what we see in Egypt. And that, for sure, is not only due to uh, colonialism. But the other thing that plays a very strong role in this situation is also how the foreign interests play a role in, and this is not, I mean, occupation or or colonialism has not existed in Egypt for the last 70 years now. And so why are we still crying on the same spilled milk? And yet we have to realize that the interests, the new colonialism still exists, which is to enslave people through their own local leadership for the interest or for the main interest of a power or an entity that is outside their borders. And this exists till today. So it continues to play the role that we were talking about, uh, or that you are talking about, uh, which is a residual of the psychological situation that makes the person not ready to work for real democracy. So you're bringing it to new colonialism that's happening right now. I just as, wanna... as much as or more than maybe the colonialism that ended 50, 50 plus years ago. Yeah, but isn't it the very same colonialism that ended 50 years ago that gave us these regimes that we have now? So if we trace back almost all of the current oppressive regimes in the Middle East, we can find that they started immediately after colonialism. In many countries, they were left with these very weak and unorganized governments. And the only great power that was there was the military. Military saw this opportunity to grab power since it was the most powerful, organized, and previously trained by the colonialists. From these military takeovers, we have uh, the current military regime in Egypt, Saddam's regime, Bashar al-Assad's regime, and uh, the Ba'athist ideology as a whole. So don't you think it's more relevant to the previous colonizers? No. Let's look at some of the examples that you mentioned, for example. Like the Ba'athist regimes in general depended more in the rise on the people in society themselves more than it depended on the armies. It made allies with the armies in both Syria and Iraq 
alliances that went up and down, but it's not the military that took over right away and stayed in power. Uh, Saddam himself was not a military man, for example. The current Bashar al-Assad, I mean, the, the, the Assad father was a military man, but the current Bashar is not a military man. So uh, can we say that there is an evolution here of the dictatorship that is not necessarily the military dictatorship? But where you are right, and I disagree with you as well, is that I don't want to consider that the intention, let's say in 1952, by the free officers in Egypt was to uh, take power and keep it for the army. I don't know, and I wouldn't believe that they had that vision from day one. I would not think that that was the case, but I think that it grows on them after a while, like it grows on anybody, that power is good, and let us keep it, whether with more sincere intentions, where I believe was the the, the, the situation for Nasser, for example, or whether it was for total self-benefit and self-protection purposes, like I, I would evaluate Hosni Mubarak, for example. But now the situation is very different. And you are from a different generation than me, so our visions might be different on this. Now I see that the army sees itself much more like what you said, that we are the only organized power, and we are the protectors of the country, and we have this God-given right to control this country because we are, whether they believe it or not, at least they say it and convince themselves about it, we are the only and possible real protectors of this system. And we can't let it go. Like, the, the army in Egypt now is a, is a monster that, uh, that is uncontrollable. I mean, with its, with its economic holdings and its industrial facilities that it owns, etc. This is not a normal situation. This is a country within a country. This is two peoples that are totally distinct by joining uh, the, the, the army and wearing the khaki outfit. You have become a part of another tribe that, regardless of who your father and mother were, this is now your new tribe, and you have to protect it. And this is what the army is right now. I don't think that was the situation from day one when the armies took power, uh, because on day one when they took power, they did think that they have the, the, the best opportunity, of course, to topple the existing regimes. But I think it was done with a lot more of sincerity uh, than what we see now. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to discuss more of recent history and foreign intervention in the Middle East or the West intervention in general. So over the recent history, we have seen that foreign intervention by the West can really strengthen oppressive regimes and help sustain them. For example, in Latin America or in Eastern Europe. And as soon as the Cold War ended and the Western powers withdrew their support of the regimes in Latin America or Eastern Europe, the oppressive regimes quickly crumbled. However, in the Middle East, we still see that their intervention is to support the authoritarian regimes, and it is because they have secured the Western interests in the region, which include security of Israel, oil, and other resources. So do you think the West's intervention is hindering the democratic process in the region? Yes, the short answer is yes, for sure. The longer answer is in Latin America, but more so in Eastern Europe, the stronger international players allowed or didn't strongly oppose the newly merging democracies because of two reasons. Because number one, they started to get more confident that they can play the game 
with those democracies after they take power, and they won't hinder uh, at a drastic, dramatic way their interests. So they accepted them. Number two, they saw that the people in most of those places have matured to a certain level, and this brings us back to where maybe we started, have matured to a certain level that they can not be easily stopped. So they accepted that as well. Not that, again, it's not a step function. It's not that yesterday they were not ready and today they became ready, but they helped bring democracy to themselves. Now, I don't think that the Western powers believe that democracies in the Middle East will be playing their game, whereas many democracies in Eastern Europe are playing their game. And what happened in Brazil just uh, weeks ago shows that things can change very quickly. You can have a democratic government that does not play the West's game or the international economic club's uh, game. And through democracy, again, democracy can bring another regime that would play your game and be beneficial to you. And they are not ready to accept this risk in the Middle East because of, as you mentioned, Israel is a very important factor there, but because of the oil and the geopolitical location of the Middle East, they are not ready to accept this. Plus, they feel, and rightly so, I will not deny it, they feel that they are culturally and intellectually much further from the peoples of the Middle East, that for them, they cannot trust giving those people their chance to rule themselves. That's a very big risk. It's a much bigger risk than giving the Latin Americans that choice or giving the Eastern Europeans that choice. Yeah, that... That actually ties into my next question. You answered my next question was that if you think governments around the world really want democracy or in the Middle East, or do they share the British diplomat Martin Indyk's perspective that democracy in the Middle East is a chaos inducer? I think they, they share the latter, but they also could have shared the latter about Eastern Europe and, and Latin America. But in the Middle East, they are not I mean, yes, I, I guess I did answer the question. In the Middle East, they're not willing to take that chance. And the stakes for them are much higher. So this brings me to more questions about the future. When I asked you the question about if uh, the Middle Eastern population is mature enough or understands democracy, you mentioned that socially we are not prepared for it and we can't wait for a change to happen from the upper class. So what is your hope for the future? How do we come to a solution to this problem? There needs to be a lot of a lot of sacrifice by uh, the thinkers. And I think they will be persecuted and they will be... It's sad uh, that I have to say this sitting here in the safety of, of Canada. But I think that the only way is that those who believe in, in democracy have to challenge the current frame of mind, basically, that is in control of the country. They have to also challenge the religious institutions and a hefty price will be paid. But as long as those two components in society remain as they are, then it is not going to be possible to change the regime because democracy, it's a part of, I consider it a part of the human rights is not given, it has to be taken. And for it to be taken, people have to understand why it's important and have to understand why there are or how there are 
misinterpretations of religion, how religion is being used to control them, those things have to be challenged. And it's a long, long road. But I believe also that with what happened in 2011, this road has started. And uh, if we want to draw the parallel with the French Revolution, let's let's draw it again. There is nothing one-to-one that will be uh, between any two societies and any two experiences. But uh, what happened is that there's gonna, the door is opened now for the back and forth. My My concern is that many people till now, even when they challenge the religious institutions, they challenge the religious institutions in a very shy and, and like reserved way. I think the challenge should go much bigger than that because what's at stake here is really the future of the people long term. When I look at what's happening in Egypt right now, this is nothing like what happened over the 30 or the 50 years that ended in 2011. What's happening right now has no concern about the interest of the Egyptian people whatsoever. And thus, the stakes are much, much higher. And what we see right now is an era with everything to condemn, or nearly everything to condemn, with with a president who says, if we have done feasibility studies for these projects, do you think we would have done these projects? I mean, statements like that really show the level that we have sunk to so unfortunately, and the way I, I would add, the way people are persecuted as well makes it clear that you have nearly nothing to lose. So you'd better die fighting than die just oppressed. I'm putting it in simple words, but I think this is only when people start seeing it like that, only when leadership, intellectual uh, and, and social justice leadership start seeing it like that, will they come out in an, in an all open confrontation with the government and with the institutions, foremost of them religious, that advocate for the government uh, within the, the, the hearts and minds of people. Only when they come that way will change start to happen. So it is a long road, but I do hope that it wouldn't take a hundred years like it took in, in France for a, a stable republic to emerge. Those are great words and they really remind us that we need to think of it in a long-term process and not aim for short gains like we did uh, past uh, 2011 after the revolution. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. We also have to realize that the political opposition or so-called opposition leadership has to, for, for any gains to materialize, has to reform itself or get out of the way because they are a product of the same mentality that brought us to where we are right now. And the only way out is to think totally out of the box about how the country can can move forward and act in a very different way. And as long as uh, there is no trust, there is internal squabbling, there is no common vision, there is no ability to prioritize what's important and what's not important. As long as all these things exist, the the process will not start, let alone will not reach results. I want to end this by asking you, as a political activist, what are steps you are taking now or what is your advice to people who actually want to see change in the region? First, one person or a small group are not enough. But I am hoping that within the, the, the foreseeable future, groups of Egyptians who have the interest of Egypt in mind, among those who are living abroad, 
but have not connected emotionally and disconnected, sorry, have not disconnected emotionally or intellectually from their home country, their, their country of origin, would come together and use whatever tools they can to set the example and encourage this change. Change will not come from uh, expatriates. I would totally never dispute that. But the expatriates can set an example of how they deal, of how they think, of how they tolerate dissent and how they tolerate differences. And they can play a role and encourage what I spoke about earlier, which is those who have, who are at a higher stake inside to move and uh, sacrifice. You're correct in saying that the future of the revolutions in the Arab world or in the Middle East are going to start from the outside because I think even the regimes in the Middle East are realizing that because they're looking ahead and they see that the change is probably going to come from the thinkers outside the country. Because they think that they have full control on the thinkers inside the country. And in today's world, there is also, and this is a great advantage, there is also very little hard, solid borders with social media and the internet and the likes. So it is, let's, let's believe it that if a, a thinker in early 1900s wanted to see change in his home country, but he was living abroad, he had to smuggle his papers or his writings or whatever that are banned inside the country. Move forward 50 years in, in the Khomeini revolution, Iran, his thought-provoking khutbas and change-provoking khutbas were smuggled in Iran on cassette tapes. Right now, the situation is, is very different. So those abroad can play a much bigger role. But I don't want to, again, give an impression that those who are abroad can really cause the change. They can be a catalyst, help the change start, but it needs conviction inside for the change to happen. Yeah, I think that sums up all I have to say to you. Do you have any other notes you want to say or any other things you want to bring up? Uh, honestly, Anas, I think this was a, a very uh, eye-opening discussion for me personally, and it helped me uh, focus and frame many scattered thoughts that I had. So the only thing I can say now is, Thank you very much for having me and thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Congratulations, you've made it quite far. And if you've made it this far in the episode, that means you like what you're listening to. Here are some ways you can support your new favorite podcast. You can follow the Facebook page and comment. I really want to hear what you guys have to say. And of course, share this with your friends and let me know if you have something you want to share and you can be a guest on one of my episodes or you can connect me to someone cool you know. Anyway, I just want to hear more from you. So please, uh, reach out. <laughs>